How can the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx media studies move from the niche to the mainstream? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Christopher Chavez in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. Uh, we are delighted to have with us today Christopher Chavez. Christopher is Associate Professor and Carolyn Silva Chambers, Distinguished Professor in Advertising at the University of Oregon in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Chris did his Bachelor's uh, of Science in Marketing at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. From there, he went to obtain not one, but two master degrees at the University of Southern California, and then his PhD at the University of Southern California and the Annenberg School for Communications with a dissertation entitled Hispanic Advertising as Social Orientation, an examination of the advertising industry as a field of cultural production um, under a committee of uh, stellar scholars uh, chaired by Mike Cody. Uh, Chris is the author of three books, most recently, The Sound of Exclusion, NPR and Latinx uh, Public, um, uh, that was published by the University of Arizona Press uh, in 2021. Um, he has dozens of uh, articles and book chapters under his name in some of the best venues in uh, and outlets in the field. and has received numerous awards, including uh, this year, the award for from the University of Oregon for advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in research. Chris, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. It's good to be here with you. It's truly, truly wonderful to have you with us today. So, so Chris, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California and I went to, you know, very working class uh, and I went to a state school. Uh, and at the time you can afford to pay your way through school. And so I went for a very practical uh, field, uh, which is to, to, to go into business uh, and somehow work in a, in a big building, wearing a suit. I think that was the original business. And uh, I majored in marketing. And so my background is in marketing. Uh, and I tried a, a, just a bunch of different kinds of internships. Uh, I worked for Disney. Uh, in their marketing and distribution for a little bit. I had a job with Coca-Cola uh, where we would work with the truck drivers one week and then we'd work with the merchandisers the next and then we would ultimately go with the advertisers. Um, but then I, I ended up at an advertising agency, which is I think I really truly fell in love with uh, that field, uh, a small agency called Ruben Foster and Associates. At night though, I would go and um, 
go and got my master's degree at the University of Southern California in communications management, which is it's more of a, a strategic communications orientation. And I think it was there that I fell in love with the theory and, and really became aware of what I didn't know, uh, having gone to a state school and just really embracing that. And so I, I'd always meant to go back, right? Just because I fell in love with the field and I fell in love with the topic. Um, in the meantime, I, I worked in advertising for about 10 years and um, it just thought the questions that we were wrestling with in advertising, I wanted to, to do it in more in depth. You know, were we dealing with audiences? We were creating campaigns that were going out into the world. Uh, we were understanding how organizations brand themselves. Uh, and we we're doing it in a very practice-oriented way, um, as well as how these agencies were wrestling with demographic changes that were occurring, um, you know, over the course of the time that I was there. And so in 2004, um, just made the decision to walk away from advertising and then to pursue graduate education um, full-time. And I've never looked back. Uh, you know, USC was gracious enough to take me uh, and I was thankful enough to be there and just got to work with a community of scholars there that really opened my eyes. Um, and I do feel like just having that experience, that practical experience helps me be a better critical scholar uh, just because I understand how it works and the mechanics of campaigns. And so, even the work that I did for NPR was understanding how it operates as a business and a brand that competes in the marketplace. Uh, so that kind of understanding, I think, has helped me in the critical work that I do. Excellent. So, so how was the transition from a professional career in advertising to graduate school? How was that process for you? Initially, it was very humbling. Because uh, it, it was it was a quite successful career in advertising, and I'd worked for um, great agencies in in San Francisco primarily and in Boston. It's also very collaborative work, and so you're working with a team of people. Um, when you're starting off at graduate school, you're you're starting off from the beginning. You know, you, one there's a big monetary difference. You know, you're you're not making a ton of money as a graduate student. You're living very humbly, and it's also very autonomous work. Um, and the good part of that, though, I felt was like, at least it was mine, right? Yes, it's humbling, uh, but I own my own production. In advertising, you don't because hundreds of people will touch a project, right? You have the art directors, you have the copywriters, the producers, the media planners. So nothing's ever truly yours. It's almost cultural production by committee. But in graduate school, at least in the academic work, my work is mine, right? Uh, I have control over it in a way that I wouldn't in other places. So I think that was a, a little bit humbling. I think... Um, also having greater control, again, not only of your creative product and your, your um, knowledge product, but your time, how you do it, um, the work that you do. So I, I think um, I really enjoy the, the, the flexibility with it. Okay. And as the years unfolded, how did you, you know, focus on what eventually became your dissertation project? How did you choose a topic? How did you go about doing that? And what kind of mentorship did you get? So um, the topic actually predates my academic career. Uh, I remember being in meetings at agencies uh, and they were, they were called general market agencies. So they're basically mainstream agencies in San Francisco. Um, and every once in a while, they would want to reach out to the, the Hispanic market, right? Which is what they would call it. And because I was one of the only Latinos in the building, uh, sure enough, I would be carted out to try to understand this phenomenon. And I think what struck me at the time was just how ill-prepared these agencies were um, to really accommodate consumers that were becoming different from them. You know, and so you saw this really increasing disparity between 
the consumer population and then these, these media organizations that remain primarily white and exclusive. Um, and just the ineptness in which agencies would try to wrestle with these issues. And so I, I bore witness to that firsthand. Uh, so going into the um, uh, to the academic field, like I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. What I, I didn't know was how I wanted to look at it. And I didn't have the language or the theoretical lenses in which to understand it. And so for my first couple of years, because I was studying, I guess, technically advertising, um, I almost got slotted into social psychology, which is a lot of where advertising work fits into. And then after two years, just realizing that's those aren't my questions. Um, that's not what I want to do. Those aren't the paradigms that really speak to me. Uh, and so towards the second half, looking at it more from a sociological and then later from a cultural perspective um, was a process for me. And so I'd say my first couple of years in graduate school were very different um, than the second half, just finding myself and finding the literatures that speak to me. Um, part of that journey too was, was having my advisor. Um, I remember one day when he first shared a piece on, on Bourdieu um, and he said, you know, this might, might explain it for you. And then that lightning bolt that goes off in your head where, yes, that explains the world to me. That makes sense to me. And so I've, you know, more or less been working within that framework ever since, but um, just having, um, faculty members that were flexible, um, that were, you know, um, patient with you, and then just willing to share ideas. Uh, I was really appreciative of that fact. Okay. Um, when you were moving forward with the dissertation and you were considering the next stage for you professionally, um, did you consider different areas of work or was the academy the main path that you had in mind? Uh, definitely the academy was the, the, the main product that I had after that. Um, you know, I had had an advertising career and I think it just didn't speak to me anymore. And I was at the point in my life where that's that's not the person I want to be at age 40 or 50 or beyond that. Uh, I really wanted to be a professor. And so um, knock on wood, you know, I've been able to, to achieve that. Uh, so I feel very, very fortunate just because I know it, it, it's competitive and it's a very tough market. And I'm, I, I just feel very blessed. So how was the experience of getting the job? How was the process? And how did you go about it? It's, it's very humbling. Um, part of it is because you don't really know your worth in the marketplace. And, and I, I feel, and this is something I'll talk about with my graduate students too that are in the market. You know, we either overestimate our value in the market or we underestimate our, mar our value in the market. Uh, I think I probably had overestimated my value because I was coming with professional experience. Uh, I had, I was going to a school that had a reputation. So, I mean, I just didn't know. And so I sent out a limited amount of applications and then no responses. Uh, and I think uh, that first round just passed me by. And I think I was, I was a little bit surprised at that. And then I think at the very, very last minute, um, it was a late call in spring, uh, a call came in from St. Louis University and they were looking for somebody in strategic communication and I applied and, and got that job. So it was very, very late uh, in the hiring season, but I, I, was, I was prepared to have lost that year. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just, you just don't know what it looks like and, and so much of it's beyond your control, uh, but it can be a very, very humbling experience. And Building on that, if you were to sort of reflecting on 
your experience in particular and of the students you've guided over the years and the colleagues that you've heard uh, share theirs. What would you say are some do's and don'ts of uh, you know looking for a job, in particular at the entry level, right at the beginning, um, that might be of of interest to our audience? Yeah, I would just say have a very clear narrative. You know, these pieces that that are often requested, things like personal statements, uh, now diversity statements, research statements, and teaching. They should all really cohere, um, and it should provide a, co a coherent narrative of who you are. Uh, rather than having being very fractious or having different kinds of interests. So I think just really fine-tuning that narrative because so much of that is is a strategic document, right? You are selling yourself to uh, prospective employers. Um, the second thing that I try to encourage students to do is, is make it hand in glove. So really tailor your application materials to the university. Uh, it's easy to tell when these statements are generic uh, or when you're using it to apply to multiple universities. It's, it's another when you speak to the mission of the university uh, or when you speak to the mission of, of the department or the school and how you would really fit in with the faculty there. It takes a lot more time, but um, but really worth it because I think um, you want to make it very easy on the reader to understand how you would fit into that school and that department and that set of faculty. Uh, so that's something that I encourage my students to do. And then I, I, I believe this, and I know faculty have other perspectives or different faculty, is it's a numbers game. Right. So put out as as many applications as you can. Don't don't misrepresent yourself. But if it's in your area, apply for it and um, go through the process. Right. Um, I have some students that say, OK, I'm only going to work in California or I'm only going to work near a beach. And they don't realize just how competitive the marketplace can be. Um, and it's very competitive. Any given job, you know, if it does materialize, might have hundreds of applications. Like it's a, just a, a tough market out there. And all of these competitors are, are worthy and they're all smart and well-published. And so what's gonna make you stand out? So I think um, so I think that's what I would offer up to, to prospective candidates out there. And so how were the first years then for you as a tenure track professor at St. Louis? I really enjoyed it. I, I worked at St. Louis University. It's a Jesuit university. Mm -hmm. um, it's a research two uh, that wants to be a research one. And I think not having the pressure to produce right away um, gave me some room as a scholar to, to discover my voice and to start building a, a research portfolio without the pressure of maybe going into a really intense R1 university. And so um, I feel like I have had the kind of the space and the room to breathe and to grow, and then eventually to, to compete for a job probably more ably at a research one university. And so I think having that space, and I, I would recommend don't rule it out for, for students that, that want to become research-oriented professors. Don't rule out R2s and even R3s. Uh, it's not gonna be your only job and it's not gonna be the job that you have to stay in forever. Um, but you know, find a place that's going to be supportive and comforting. And, and St. Louis was. Uh, I loved working with the students. The classes were smaller. In some ways, I, I miss um, that sort of seminar feeling to the classroom. Um, and mm. it had a really strong social justice orientation, which I, I really appreciated. Um, so I think that that was was a big. Um, I, I think it was it was a gift to, to start off at at a, a place of that size. I think the limited part of that. And one of the things that I benefited when I, I did get a job at University of Oregon is the scale and scope of our one university. You know, there, there's a lot more uh, dedicated resources for research and support for research at an R1. 
that I didn't necessarily have at, um, at uh, St. Louis University. So um, it was kind of a game changer for me. I think once I got to the University of Oregon, just having those kinds of resources and those kind of support and already having now a research pipeline that had started to get going, um, I think at that point, my, my career tra trajectory kind of took off. I was gonna ask, so then how did you decide to make that transition? When you know, did you make that decision? How, how did that happen? It was about three years in, um, and I think part of it was a, a conversation with my family. So it was very much a family decision. Um, my wife and I grew up in Southern California. Our families are on the West Coast. My family's in Oregon and my wife's family is, is still in Southern California. Um, and just being in the Midwest was, was hard. It was hard on her. It was hard for our daughters. Uh, and so, you know, I, I remember very early on telling my wife, three years, just give me three years to kind of get things going and to, to get my research trajectory going and, and to build uh, at least a portfolio. Um, and I, I want to say around year two, we had kind of a, an honest conversation because this next move was probably going to be one of the last moves. Where would we want to be? What kind of organization? And I think the only two places we could land on or agree on as, as, as a couple uh, was somewhere in Washington or somewhere in Oregon. Like, okay, Judy, this, this is, it's really hard to get a job anywhere, right? So the chances of a job coming up in Oregon are, are going to be pretty remote. And if a job does show up, the fact that it's in my area is going to be even more remote. And the fact that I'll actually get the job, even if I compete for it, would be even more remote. So don't get your hopes up. It could be another couple of years. But somehow a job popped up that summer, uh, and I competed for it and got it. And um, I really kind of pinched myself since that, uh, because just the timing couldn't have been better. Um, and so... So within a year, at the end of third year, I, I had a job at the University of Oregon. And you've done very well since. I mean, you have three books, uh, lots of articles. Um, you are also the director of Latina Latino and Latin American Studies. Um, how has been your experience as a leader? When did you start that position, by the way, as director? So I started two years ago. So then actually I'm going into my second year. Okay. Um, so this is the second year in that position, and it's been a learning process for me. Um, I, I really enjoy the interdisciplinary nature of it, uh, as I'm sure that you do in the work that you do too, is that you are not only learning from scholars in your field, uh, which I do, but you're learning from scholars in um, literature or in history or in Caribbean studies, uh, in political studies. Uh, just having exposure to faculty from all of our campuses, I think has been a benefit. I think running a research center, there's a lot to it that I, I'm still learning. Um, the you know, making them financially sustainable, making sure that they have a presence within administration, all of these things I think are uh, new to me, uh, just given this kind of the scope and scale of it. Um, and then our community's changing. Um, Eugene is is not a heavy Latinx community, and so it will be. You know, we're in a process of demographic change, as many places are, and I think the university has an orientation towards that. But we're not there yet. And so we're in the process of, of building a community um, and making sure our Latinx faculty have a home and have a community and can feel supported. Uh, and that administration knows that. So it's been it's been a, a challenge, I'd say. Okay. And so re reflecting on that role plus your scholarship, what would you say is the place of Latinx media studies in both? Communication and media studies more general, 
and in Latinx, Latina, Latino studies more general, right? So within the within the discipline, within the interdiscipline, how where does this niche sit at the intersection of both, and where do you see it growing in the future? Yeah, it, broadly, I'd say like media studies and communication is it's currently housed in the School of Journalism Communication, at least how it operates here. But English department wants to lay claim to it. Uh, folklore wants to lay claim to it. There are other units on campus that could rightly lay, lay claim to what we call media studies. So I'd say it's very much still contested um, and growing and changing. And it's an exciting time to be studying the, the, the things that we're studying, um, given the kind of, again, technological change, uh, political change, uh, demographic change. So I think it's an important moment to be studying this. Um, I do think it's important to carve out spaces specifically for Latinx media studies um, because oftentimes it gets ignored uh, or oftentimes there isn't a space for these very important conversations. We, uh, we don't have the opportunity um, or oftentimes it's seen as, as niche uh, or not quite uh, part of a, of a larger conversation. And I completely disagree with that. So until we can be you know, included in some of these spaces, I think it's important to create unique forms for uh, Latinx scholars. And so that's something that I try to do. It's something that um, I try to support the work, particularly of junior scholars in this area, just one, because they're doing such smart work uh, mm -hmm. and they're at the forefront of it. Um, but, you know, they're, they're your colleagues, right? I, I love being part of this community. And when I think of, you know, who my academic community is, I, I first go there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of representation, there is a significant level of underrepresentation in the Latinx community within the larger academic field, right? I mean, in the US, it's about prevalence in the population is 19%, right? Mm -hmm. This identifies that, and only 5% are in tenure track positions. In the field of communication, it's not that much different. I haven't seen numbers, but I would imagine we are also talking about, you know, similar level of underrepresentation. What could be done, in your opinion, to sort of reduce this gap between, you know, presence of the Latinx people within the population at large versus presence in the academy? Yeah, my hope is that it's iterative, you know, that the more faculty that we have, uh, that are either Latin American or Latinx, it will attract more graduate students to the field. Um, I think it's important for us as scholars to also do much more public scholarship so that we have visibility beyond sort of these insular circles, right? That we can reach out and write um, public pieces or create films or create other forms of public scholarship that have a greater exposure uh, and then bring in students. But um, also creating a very supportive community within graduate programs. Uh, for a short while, I was our doctoral program director, and, and we recruit heavily from the global south, right? So we many of our students come from Latin America and from India, from different countries within Africa, um, and they come with unique challenges. Um, and so um, in a place like Eugene, it can be disorienting. And so just making sure that there are uh, mentorship programs, support systems, um, even down to resources that students need to go to conferences and to go to uh, get visas in some cases. Um, again, like some bodies are more restricted than others. And so because I happen to hold a, a U.S. passport, I'm much more mobile uh, in a way that many of our students are not. And so just accounting for the small ways in which being a graduate student, which is already difficult uh, in general, 
is particularly difficult if you're first generation or if English is not your first language uh, or if, if you happen to not hold US citizenship or have another kind of passport, uh, it's much more difficult. So just being much more aware, aware of those kinds of things. Okay, and, and you know, building off on these last sort of set of statements, reflecting on your own experience as a graduate student versus what you see now when you mentor graduate students, mm -hmm. do you think the graduate student experience, at least in our field, right, has changed over the past couple of decades? Do you think it has stayed the same? And if it has changed, in which sort of ways do you think it has changed? Yeah, I think, so I think it's the competition is greater overall. I think you just having served on admissions committees, because you're not only competing with people in your area uh, or even people nationally, you're competing with really strong talent from all over the world. And again, they're all worthy. Uh, and so I think the nature of competition is, is just getting greater. And then on the back end, going into the workforce, uh, the number of, again, very qualified candidates by far outnumbers the number of available positions that are out there, um, specifically in tenure track roles. So there seems to be kind of a um, supply and demand um, imbalance there that I, I think just has to be contended with in some kind of way. Uh, so I think that's been much more difficult. I'm not sure if I would have gotten into USC today. Uh, and I'm not sure if I would have been competitive in the same way that that I would have been, you know, in 2009. It's just much more of a, a competitive landscape. And so working with students, just knowing that, uh, knowing that they have to start a little bit earlier on in terms of publishing or at least crafting their identity. They didn't necessarily have the same luxury that I did to have to find your voice or to find your theoretical orientation. I think the, the pressure's on a little bit more. And so finding that balance between giving them the room to discover and giving them the room to, room to breathe, but at the same time knowing that funding runs out in four years or five years, uh, depending on, on your program's funding effort, um, and being very aware of the practical realities at the end of that. Uh, and so I'd say that's kind of the, the, the biggest change that I've seen. Uh, the second change is just the, the change to media itself, you know, the, the way you know, studying film is different today than than it did, you know was twenty years ago. Just because what is what is film, what is the relationship with the rise of streaming platforms? Like the whole digital disruption has changed the nature of media. So I think the questions that students are asking, um, in some ways, are evergreen, uh, but in some ways, man, they're really playing out in in interesting and fantastic kinds of ways that we're all bearing witness to. Uh, so for me, I know when um, I was working, I was advising a student who was a, a game study scholar, and that world to me. It was as much a learning process, I think, for me working with the student uh, than the student learned from me. And so uh, so that's, yeah, I, th I think the, the nature of media has changed it significantly. Okay. Um, now, you touched upon two issues, right? The nature of media changing and the productivity demands, mm -hmm. right? Um, so talking about the first, so going in order, um, what, what kind of advice do you give young scholars about how to deal with the, the rising demands in terms of volume of publications that is expected um, of them? Um, and, 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 you know, how do you see people taking that advice or not? I mean, how do you see young uh, scholars dealing with that? Yeah, and again, I try, for me, I try to strike that balance of, okay, discover yourself, but at the same time, just just write. 
uh, and put that writing out there in the world and get feedback on it. I think one of, the, and some students will take that advice. I think many of them feel very reluctant to share their work because they don't feel it's quite ready. Uh, and in some ways that when they read our work, they're reading it in its final form, right? After it's been edited, after the hundreds of revisions, they don't see the crap that we put together in the first draft of it. And, and so they're not bearing witness to that process, which I, I do think is very important. You know, I'll go through hundreds of revisions, you know, before it, it's, it's something's ready for submission, much less production or publication. Um, but to write and to get that work out there. Um, but I think just getting into that rhythm of, of writing and submitting earlier rather than later, I think would be helpful for them just because, again, it's, it may not, it, it takes some time to kind of figure that genre of writing out, uh, the process of publication, how to deal with rejection, how to decide whether it's the right publication to pursue or whether it's the wrong publication altogether. For me, early on in my publishing process, I was submitting work to the wrong journals and I didn't know that. And so I, I, it was an important learning for me to understand like, oh, I should be submitting to these kind of journals and not those. And I, I wish I would have known that earlier. Hmm. Okay, and then going back to the second issue that you mentioned, the nature of media. One thing that I at least hear a lot from our students is, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to study this form of media or this innovation, but I don't know if anybody would be interested in five years when I'm done with the work, right? Because there will be something else new, right? Um, how, how do you think uh, that issue can be best addressed? And, and what kind of uh, wisdom can we share with the students about that? Yeah, and I think this is a particular challenge with our field. Um, you know, I think I mentioned with my book on NPR, the minute it went to presses, uh, there are changes to the industry or there are changes to technology. And you're like, man, I wish I could stop the presses and revise some of those things. Um, but when I deal with it with our students, because they, they are studying, in some cases, new platforms, uh, Twitch or um, Facebook even, which is, has evolved significantly since its first iteration, um, you know, really distinguish distinguishing between concept and context, at least how that's how I'll articulate it. Uh, conceptually, is it speaking to something larger that transcends a particular platform or a particular community? Uh, does it transcend that? And is it speaking to the larger conversations about cultural production or that the audiences receive information or whatever that concept that you're working with? It should be larger so that a reader 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road can find relevance of it and it could be of relevance beyond the US, right? Can a reader in um, you know, Ghana read it and, and find something relevant there? And so that's what you should strive for. But the specific context could be important, right? You could ground your study in Twitch, but still explore some of these larger issues. And so I had to have had to work with, with students that um, either make it too much about the here and now uh, and not without linking it to these larger conceptual issues, but just to make sure that whenever you're talking about something, um, it's more than just the thing itself, right? It, it's attaching to these larger conversations that we're having about ultimately what it means to be human and how we communicate with one another, uh, whether it's mediated or whether it's interpersonal or whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, uh, it should speak to these larger issues. Excellent. And then going back to something that you mentioned in, you know, when you were talking about your role as director of Latina, Latino, Latin American studies, um, you said something along the lines of creating community. Now, each of us exists in a department in university, but also belong to 
you know, usually either national or global professional associations, like the National Communication Association, National Communication Association, EAJMC, IMCR, uh, mm -hmm. Society for Cinema Media Studies, etc. Um, where do you see the conversation on issues of Latinidad in general, right, um, in those spaces, which are different from our campuses? They have different goals and different resources, right? But they are nonetheless very important in the life of a scholar, right? Um, so where do you see the broad topic uh, of Latinidad, global Latinidad, domestic, um, you know, uh, in those societies and, and where could it go from where it is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hope it, it grows. Um, so for me, within NCA, like the, um, the Latinx um, media division within NCA, there are these divisions that are specific and provide specific forums for uh, Latin American and Latinx um, writers and scholars. And so that's where I found most community and just being able to, to learn from other people's research, but also it's resulted in co-authorship opportunities. Uh, so being able to work with other scholars and, and just share research uh, and to, to provide forms from collaboration. So I, I really enjoy those spaces that work without, outside of my department. So in some ways I feel more of a community with those people than with many of my own faculty members um, who are you know, good friends, but they don't research what I do. Uh, they're not interested in the same kind of questions that I'm interested in. So I feel for me at least uh, more of a kinship and more of a community with scholars that are outside of my field, uh, but are housed within these professional associations like ICA specifically, NCA, IAMCR, which are the ones that I, I mostly try to go to. Um, but there are others, right? And, and sort of that's the beauty of our, our field is um, that we have so many more options that are available to us. So then Chris, you know, having essentially surveyed your, your experience from a student to a faculty, you know, your various roles um, as a faculty and talked about intersections of Latinx media studies, you know, in the university, in the field at large, et cetera. If you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? You know, I guess getting out of the niche, right? And that's sort of the ongoing goal. So again, we've created this niche and it's served us well uh, because we need it, right? Because we, our voices and our research isn't really um, held to the same prominence as other kinds. It's always seen as kind of an alternative discussion or something that's only of relevance to a particular community. Um, but something like, um, you know, for me, civic, civic engagement, um, growing up in Los Angeles, like being a Latino is being mainstream, like being that's just, just normative, right? Uh, but somehow within this paradigm, we're often relegated to the niche. And because it's relegated to the niche, it seems as sort of lesser than or, uh, you know, not as relevant to the public at large. Uh, but I think these are important conversations that we're asserting about, you know, just the nature of television generally, or the nature of film, or the nature of political discourse generally. Uh, yes, my specific context is is the Latinx public or the Latinx audience, but the questions that we're asking have much much broader implications. So I wish we could sort of get rid of this idea of the niche, uh, but we somehow seem again culturally beholden to it. Absolutely. That's very, very powerful. Thank you very much, uh, Chris, for a 
great conversation. Thank you very much to our listeners uh, for staying with us through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.